From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An impeachment inquiry into President Trump involves a call to the president of Ukraine. President Trump released notes on that call. We'll hear from a Colorado history professor about why and how the White House takes notes on top officials' phone calls. Then, a nature documentary about some unpredictable creatures. I like the fact that they're rebellious and they have an attitude and they're mysterious. The director's not talking about an animal. This film is about mushrooms. And Master Gardener Lonnie Godet answers your questions like, Why do pumpkins turn orange? And is it too late to plant carrots? Plus, meet everybody. The character of everybody represents all mankind. A modern twist on a Greek morality play. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lowe. The document outlining President Trump's phone call with Ukraine's president makes one thing clear. It's not a verbatim transcript of the discussion. That call, of course, is at the heart of the impeachment inquiry now underway and the whistleblower complaint. Ken Osgood is a professor of U.S. political and diplomatic history at Colorado School of Mines. Over the course of his career and research, he's read thousands of records of presidential conversations like the one released Wednesday. Ken, welcome to the program. Uh, Good morning, Avery. Thanks for having me. Many folks might not realize that every official conversation the president has is documented by note takers. Why is that? Well, probably not every official conversation, but but certainly the vast majority of them are are documented. And part of the reason is is that the mechanisms of government are so tremendously complex that the 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 meetings and conversations the president have have important implications uh, across the range of of government agencies. Uh, and advisors tasked with helping the president make decisions. The records will be useful for um, sometimes for very mundane purposes like follow-up conversations and keeping track, sometimes for for more sort of self-interested purposes of of holding someone who spoke to the president uh, at his or her word, Um, sometimes, you know, to correct if there are misquotations or sort of fabrications related to a presidential conversation. Um, Those kinds of things are the reasons why careful notes are often taken, sometimes recordings, et cetera. So it sounds like this has a lot to do with the efficacy of government and not so much the intent of the process being to being a checks and balances on presidential power, right? Correct. This is entirely an executive uh, a function of the of, of the actual workings of the executive branch. Usually these uh, conversations are are held in confidence. Um, most often they're classified, especially if they deal with anything related to foreign affairs because of the potential for uh, embarrassment or the need to for a president to be able to have confidential conversations with with foreign leaders, with his his advisors, um, so for those kinds of reasons, the the documents are often are often withheld from public scrutiny until much later. And in the case of classified documents, that can be in fact decades before those documents are declassified and made available to researchers. Those are the kinds of documents I've seen the most, ones that were previously classified uh, and then have since become open to historians like myself. So it's unusual that we would see one this soon after it happened. Quite unusual. How far back does this process of taking notes go? Uh, Well, the process of of taking notes of presidential meetings, um, uh, certainly between heads of state or or official meetings, is is almost as old as diplomacy in the sense that any time a head of state is having some conversation, there's there's often some written documentation of what transpires. But the idea of a a semi-verbatim type of transcript is a, is a more modern invention. We see it practiced um, 
with much more sort of system within a sort of systematic way during the Second World War with Franklin Roosevelt and continuing on to the present day, getting ever more sophisticated, ever more sort of professionalized. You have people within the White House whose jobs it is to sit there and listen to conversations and record them accurately. Um, in the case of of White House conversations with foreign leaders. There's actually a whole team of people. They'll have um, in the basement of the White House, in the, in the Situation Room, there'll be two or three note takers listening in, and then they will check their notes against each other. Those notes will be re- reviewed by senior officials in the administration um, for accuracy and clarity, that type of thing. And I can understand why back when this first started, it might have been done by hand. But today, there is so much access to recording technology. Why aren't these types of calls just recorded instead? Well, there's there's very good historical reasons, and they all surround the presidency of Richard M. Nixon. Um, presidents began recording phone calls and meetings as early as Franklin Roosevelt. He kind of experimented with some systems. Uh, Harry Truman did a little bit of it. Dwight Eisenhower did a little bit of it. JFK did a whole bunch during the Cuban Missile Crisis especially. Um, and it continued up to Richard Nixon, who recorded almost 4,000 hours of conversations of meetings. That process came to kind of bite him, uh, so to speak, during the Watergate investigation when those, when the existence of those tapes, which was not known, no one knew the presidents recorded, well, any of the presidents were recording these conversations. So when the adv- existence of those tapes became known, prosecutors wanted to get their hands on them. And so very famously, when, when Nixon was forced to turn over the recordings, there was a long, I think it's 17 some odd minutes uh, missing from one of those phone calls. Ever since then, no president has wanted to produce a, a verbatim uh, audio transcript of, of his conversations, lest it come back to hurt him in the way that it did with Richard Nixon. So by not recording and producing verbatim transcripts, the system does, in a sense, protect the president. Yes. You once interned at the State Department and even worked on the Ukraine desk. While doing that, you got a good sense of the planning that goes into phone calls between the president and a foreign leader. Did anything about how this call between President Trump and the president of Ukraine, how it was set up, strike you as unusual? Yeah, so perhaps a little bit of a background on how these types of phone calls are set up. They're the product of extensive planning and preparation. It, it is rare that the president just picks up a phone, right? Uh, and it's not as if the world leader is immediately sitting there by the phone waiting for a call for a president. So there's a lot of planning and coordination that goes into it. Usually calls are initiated by someone within the State Department or the National Security Council who has some issue that they think the president needs to address. They will then prepare a briefing memo that's reviewed by intelligence officials, by various agencies, reviewed by the National Security Council advisor. Uh, Then the president will be briefed. Then the president will have that conversation. In this case, um, we see some parallels and some differences. So one parallel is is if the whistleblower's account is to be believed, there was indeed some preparation for this meeting, which which is partially what makes that 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 document so important. In addition, um, we know there's some preparation, but we also know it's outside normal policy channels. There's no there, there's very little evidence in the substance of the conversation or the whistleblower complaint that the president has a serious policy issue policy issue that the the government wants him to investigate or pursue. Rather, it's clear he's pursuing a very limited political agenda of his own. And rather than having official diplomats or representatives of the U.S. government laying the groundwork for that call, it looks like it was his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. And those are some things that you see looking at the transcript. And of course, we don't want to speculate on what we don't know yet. 
Um, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Ken Osgood is a professor of U.S. political and diplomatic history at Colorado School of Mines. He's read many, many records of presidential conversations like the one between President Trump and Ukraine's president. When we come back, a documentary that explores the symbiotic relationship between humans and mushrooms. Fungi, also pronounced fungi, are recyclers. They break down dead organisms so the matter in those bodies can become the building blocks for new organisms. A new film screening in Denver explores the world of mushrooms. Director Louis Schwartzberg has made documentaries about winged creatures and the unseen world for Disney and National Geographic. His latest documentary, Fantastic Fungi, continues that theme of making the invisible visible. Hi, Louis. It's great to be here. Mycophiles, people who love mushrooms, are prominent in this film. There's a huge subculture of mycophiles, of people who are fascinated with mushrooms. They're sort of bloated pleasure seekers with a scientific bent. You know, really my kind of crap. Mushrooms actually were the window by which I came to understand nature in a deeper way. That science and food writer Eugenia Bone. Louis, are you a mycophile? I am a mycophile. I'm a mycophile primarily because I love the way they look when they grow in time-lapse. I've been, you know, pioneering time-lapse for almost 40 years. So when you can see a flower open or a mushroom grow, it definitely, you know, expands your horizons and opens your heart. Let's talk about those time-lapse videos of mushrooms growing because they're really central to this documentary. Is there something difficult about filming fungi in particular on time-lapse? Yeah, it's really hard to shoot mushrooms, uh, much more difficult than shooting flowers or plants because you don't exactly know like where they're going to pop up. They need more of a controlled atmosphere. They need more CO2. They need a certain amount of humidity, and they're totally unpredictable. Um, I like the fact that they're rebellious and they have an attitude and they are um, kind of like, you know, um, they're mysterious. You know, they they pop up where you don't expect them, if you're like foraging for mushrooms, for example. So they they like being little hidden creatures. (laughs) I like that idea of a rebellious mushroom. Yeah. Uh, How do you go about finding the mushrooms that you're going to film or cultivating them? What is that process like? Well, in truth, most of the mushrooms that I filmed were done indoors because we have to have a controlled environment with lighting, with wind, and also nobody stealing your camera if you're going to be doing a shot that may take four weeks. So it's all done in a controlled environment. We build a small little set, you know, mini stage. And um, we pray that the mushrooms will pop up and stay in focus. And are there moments that you're really proud of capturing in this film? Oh, absolutely. Um well, anytime I can get a time-lapse mushroom, I'm proud. Yeah, there's a certain amount of failure. Maybe we get one out of five. Um, but there's a lot of magic moments in this film, I think, that um, are one of a kind. And um, either they make you fall in love with mushrooms or they freak you out. Either way, I think it grabs your attention. One that really stood out to me is you have these moments of decomposition. Could you tell me about that? Right, so... Mushrooms are either maybe the end of life or the beginning of life, depending on how you're looking at it. 
And um, so decomposition can be creepy to some people, but the reality is when elements are broken down by the fungal network, they become the elements for new life. Um, we did film some things like, you know, bugs decomposing. There's a classic shot of the mouse decomposing. But what's beautiful about it is then you see, you know, these little sprouts come up around the skull. And to me, it's a very inspiring celebration of life. It's the beginning of life. And how long did it take you to film a decomposing mouse? Probably about four weeks. It didn't smell great. Um, I've, I've shot decomposing uh, pumpkins, um, things rotting. We have a lot of rotting peaches. We have rotting raspberries. It's kind of beautiful. <laughs> Fungi are pretty complex organisms. This documentary deals quite a bit with mycelium. What's the relationship between mycelium and mushrooms? So mushrooms are the reproductive organ of mycelium. Mycelium is the organism that lives under the ground. It's kind of like a tree in an apple. So the mycelium is the tree, the mushroom is the apple. Okay, got it. To represent mycelium in your documentary, you use a lot of computer-generated images. What did you want to capture with those moments? Well, everything in the film is real except for the mycelium network under the ground. We, we take it all the way to the edge of shooting with a microscope of mycelium growing in a Petri dish. But then beyond that, for me to shoot the mycelium underground, which is only one cell thick and it's like zero light, well, what we did was we used scanning electron microscopic photographs as references, and then we had animators animate it in this branching networking pattern, which we were able to observe from the shots we did in the Petri dish. So I find it to be scientifically accurate, and it was the only way to tell the story was to use computer-generated animation. And so I think that being able to take people underground and seeing the fact that it's all connected is powerful. And as you weave this story, you also weave in a message about climate change, but yeah. it is actually a very hopeful one. What is it? Well, one of the things I never knew about the fungal network is the fact that it could be the greatest natural solution for climate change. And we do this incredible shot, a single shot that lasts over a minute, where we see a CO2 molecule going into the pore of a leaf, oxygen being released. We all know that oxygen comes from plants. But the carbon atom actually travels down the branch, the trunk of the tree, into the roots, and then the tip of the roots is transferred into the mycelium network, which is a shared network under the ground where nutrients are shared between trees and plants. So the trees may give the mycelium the carbon and sugar. The trees may be getting nitrogen, phosphorus. It's a beautiful metaphor, a shared economy under the ground, not based on greed, allowing ecosystems to flourish. And then you realize that a forest is a community not a bunch of individual trees. When it relates to climate change, it's this idea that mushrooms and fungi are actually a part of trapping carbon beneath the ground. Exactly. It's the way nature sequesters carbon under the ground. So what have we done? We dig up coal and oil, we burn it, kick it up into the atmosphere. Nature's way is being able to absorb CO2, bring it back underground, and sequester it for thousands of years. And when a new plant or tree needs to grow and it needs carbon, there it is, stored underground, ready to be used. Your documentary also features people. A guy named Paul Stamets is a key character. My mission is to discover the language of nature of the fungal networks that communicate with the ecosystem. 
if we don't get our act together and come in commonality and understanding with the organisms that sustain us today, not only will we destroy those organisms, but we will destroy ourselves. He doesn't hold an advanced degree, but he has been studying mushrooms on his own for nearly five decades. And he has a business cultivating and selling mushrooms. Why do you want people to know him? And how did you get connected with him? I first heard Paul Stamets do a presentation about 13 years ago at a Bioneers conference, which is all about biomimicry. And it really inspired me because I was, you know, at that time working on the film about pollinators. Um, I showed him some of my time-lapse mushrooms on my laptop and, and we bonded. I used Paul because he's a bit of a maverick. You know, he didn't take the academic route and become, you know, a professor at a you know, academic institution where the name of the game is really getting grants that are supported by big pharma. So he's been able to be independent in the research that he does. He's an entrepreneur where he created a business where he sells mushroom products. And it enabled him, I think, to be free in his thinking. And I think that he's a great role model for young people who want to be involved in science without having to think that they become part of a giant pharmaceutical company and that they can explore anything they want to explore. Let's talk about magic mushrooms. Stamets tells us about a significant experience he had with psilocybin mushrooms, which he credits with stopping his lifelong stutter. You also talked to a number of scientists at Johns Hopkins University whose research indicates psilocybin could help some people with anxiety and depression. William Richards is one of those. He's a psychologist with Johns Hopkins. From the memory of the transcendental state of consciousness, many people report less anxiety, less depression, less preoccupation with pain, closer interpersonal relationships, and perhaps most impressive, they claim to have a loss of the fear of death. With Denver decriminalizing psilocybin this spring, it's obviously a hot topic in the state. Do you think psilocybin should be legal? I think psilocybin should certainly be researched, number one, and then definitely should be available as a medicinal for people who are suffering. People with anxiety, PTSD, um, you know, maybe a severe diagnosis about cancer. It's been very you know, useful for people with addiction to alcohol and tobacco. So why shouldn't people who are suffering have it available? In terms of it being available to the general public, I think it should be. I mean, for many people, it could be the most significant spiritual experience of their life. And maybe they only do it once or twice, which is valid because once you get it, you get it, you know? So I think it should be made available to people in a responsible way. We should note here that the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration does warn that large amounts of psilocybin can cause panic attacks and psychosis and that an overdose can be deadly. I also thought it was interesting that you included the stoned ape hypothesis in the film. (laughs) It's this idea that primates' brains could have evolved more quickly because they ate magic mushrooms and that could have led to their evolution into Homo erectus. That hypothesis hasn't gained traction in the wider scientific community. Why did you decide to include it? Well, it's a great story, number one, um, and great for like stimulating a conversation. If it hasn't been adopted within you know the, the greater scientific community, what other hypothesis is there? What is the missing link between you know um, Homo sapiens and, and primates? Um, I think it's very compelling, and the fact that you know primates eat mushrooms. Um, we're one of you know twenty-one species of primates that eat mushrooms. 
the fact that it can open up neural networks, the fact that it can create synthesis. You know, what is language? Um, language is, you know, putting meaning to sound. Perhaps it enabled them to build, to create more courage, to build better weapons. Um, I lean into the idea that it's true, but again, we, we say it's a hypothesis. And the fact that we can have a conversation about it is really the point. I imagine that making this film was so much of a research and learning process for you. What were you really excited to learn about fungi? Everything. I mean, the greatest takeaway for me is learning that communities survive better than individuals, that communities are being connected under the ground like the Internet. And I never thought that that was going to be my giant takeaway at the end of the movie, but in the social, political times we're living in, we need to connect with each other face to face. And you really go into this in those poetic interludes throughout the documentary that Brie Larson narrates from the perspective of fungi. We are on a never-ending search for partners. Life-affirming relationships. Or at the very least, nourishment for the next leg of our journey. We have flourished side by side with your species, symbiotically, for centuries. It kind of goes to this idea that you hit on quite a bit in the film, that humans as a species could be more resilient if they understand fungi better? I think people need to appreciate nature's intelligence. And I'm telling this particular story through the viewpoint of the mushrooms. I love to take people on journeys through time and scale. I like to make the invisible visible. And all I'm doing is channeling nature's intelligence. And that blows your mind as well as opening your heart. And then you understand everything, I think, in a deeper way. So I think it's a kind of a cool judo move. People may show up to this movie and go, oh, it's a movie about mushrooms. But at the end, it's about elevating consciousness. And I want to be able to grab people's attention with beauty, not with, you know, negativity, not with conflict, not with being gross. Time-lapse mushroom, you may not have seen the girl before, but this is reality. And I think we need to be grounded in nature's intelligence and the patterns and rhythms. And I'm just putting it out there as truth. It's science. It's real. And the fact that we can kind of do a, a takeaway that it's all connected, well, that's really helpful to know. I think from an environmental point of view, sociological point of view, and political point of view. Louis, thank you so much for having this conversation. Honored to be here. And thank you, Colorado, for spreading the spores of wisdom. Louis Schwartzberg is the director of Fantastic Fungi. It's showing at Sea Film Center in Denver until October 3rd. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with your fall gardening questions, including why are pumpkins orange? I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. By now, I'm sure that we're not breaking the news that CBD is everywhere. It's the new kale, the new superfood, whatever you want to call it. But what is it? And how did something that is made from cannabis, which is still illegal in many states, become part of a never-ending national wellness industry spin cycle? 
Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Early fall means harvesting giant zucchinis, festive pumpkins, and all kind of other produce from your garden. But it also may mean dealing with aphids on your kale, brown spots in your lawn, and other scourges threatening your yard's flora. CSU Extension Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthoud is back to answer your gardening and landscape questions. Hi, Lonnie. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me back. Thanks so much for being here. First, we have a question from six-year-old Evelyn Verlee Post of Denver. Why do pumpkins turn orange? Why do pumpkins turn orange? Well, not all pumpkins turn orange. How's that for an answer? (laughs) There are white pumpkins. There are blue pumpkins. But all pumpkins start off as green. And as they mature, they turn colors because the chlorophyll that the plant is making so it can photosynthesize turns off, the plant quits making chlorophyll, so all those other pretty colors come out as fall comes along and the plant is ripening. So these pumpkins are a lot like fall leaves in that way. They are just like fall leaves in that way. Isn't that amazing? Fascinating. Now we should also mention that Evelyn is the daughter of CPR feature editor Megan Verlee, and Megan also has a question. Every year we plant at least two zucchini plants, because then even if everything else in the garden fails, I know at least we are going to be eating our body's weight in zucchinis. This summer we have seemingly found a three or four pound zucchini on our plants almost every week that we've somehow missed, and it has me wondering, if I left one of these whoppers alone, how? big could it really get? I kind of want to run this experiment, but I also kind of don't want to have to deal with a 20-pound zucchini. So the world's record for the largest zucchini is about 64 pounds. I don't know that we could grow them that large here in Colorado just because of our shortened season, but I have grown them up to 13 pounds, and that has won the Larimer County Fair Largest Zucchini Contest a couple of times. So You know, huge zucchinis, maybe not something you want to eat, but it sure is fun to take home a ribbon at fair. And what do you have to do to make one grow so large? Is there some way that you trim the plant? You can take off all of the other fruits so that the fruit that you want to grow large will will have all of the resources of the plant. So you can take off all the small zucchini, which is nice because those are the sweetest and most tender to eat anyway. Now, we have a question from a listener who wants to do some planning for next year's vegetable garden. Hello, my name is Michael Vesna. I live in Erie, Colorado. I want a garden uh, next summer that can make two specific things. A garden salad, so something with like lettuce or cabbage, carrots, cucumbers, green, white, red, onions. I'd also like to be able to make fresh homemade salsa, so tomatoes, onions, garlic, jalapeno, cilantro, maybe even some more herbs. I think I heard that there are some certain rules about where you plant certain vegetables next to each other and that there's configurations you should avoid and more optimal ones. So I was curious, what are the rules for where to plant in relation to the other vegetables? Well, that's a very interesting question. I like to think of it in terms of what likes the cool weather. So what plants do you start early so they can take advantage of cool weather and ripen versus the warm season vegetables? So your carrots, onions, garlic, uh, lettuce are all cool season vegetables, whereas your tomatoes and bell peppers uh, and other peppers, your spicy peppers are all warm season. 
A lot of people talk about companion planting, but there are no scientific studies of it. It's probably better to go with the science of which plants have similar water needs and similar light needs and which ones have, um, like I say, the warm, which are the warm seasons and the cool seasons because you'll plant them differently. Some you'll plant early, like lettuce. I get out there in March and put it in. But if you did that with your tomatoes, you are likely to lose all of them. So it's not so much about what goes together well, it's what likes the same conditions. Oh, interesting. Now, we've also got a question that I have always wondered about. This is Mike Green from Denver, and one of the questions I've always wanted to know the answer to, is a red or yellow pepper just a green pepper that's left on the vine longer, or is it a different kind of bell pepper? This question goes right back to our fall leaves and our pumpkins, and it is correct that a red or yellow or orange bell pepper is a ripe version of a green bell pepper. Uh, green bell peppers are one of the few fruits that we see in the grocery store. The reason they're less expensive is because they haven't been allowed to fully ripen, so they've taken less time, less of the farmer's time, and they can be brought to market sooner. So yes, if you leave a green pepper on the vine, it will eventually turn some shade of red, yellow, or orange, or maybe it'll pass through all three on its way to its final color of red. Well, we also have another moment going back to that pumpkins because we have another question from little Evelyn. Is it too late to plant carrots? Is it too late to plant carrots? It is not too late to plant carrots. It's a little late for our fall crops, but they will germinate typically in the fall and then you'll have a spring crop of carrots. So if you want to go to all the trouble of covering up your beds and making them a little bit weatherproof. You can try and get a good fall crop of carrots even now, but if you plant the seeds, the likelihood is they'll germinate over the winter and in the spring, you'll be ready to go. Now, let's move on to some more troublesome gardening concerns. Hi, this is Leslie Petrovsky and I live in Denver. Every year, the aphids descend on my kale and they adhere like little tiny boogers on the underside of the kale leaves, and they're almost impossible to get off. How do you get rid of aphids? Thank you. So aphids are tiny, and they are born pregnant, which means that they just produce and produce and produce more aphids, and they get into all those nice little nooks and crannies, especially in the ruffly kales. They are really frustrating. I've had them so bad in Brussels sprouts that every time I peeled a layer of Brussels sprouts expecting to finally get to the clean Brussels sprouts, there were more aphids. So the best thing to do with aphids is to take a strong stream of water from a garden hose, you can set it on your jet setting if you have an adjustable, and blast them. Because the first thing that's gonna happen is you're going to crush their soft little aphid bodies, which as a gardener is pretty darn satisfying but also you're gonna blast them off of the produce that you wish to eat. And if you get a few, well, you know, they are protein, but you know, nobody wants a mouthful of aphids. I did not know that some aphids were born pregnant. That is horrifying. They are, it is. Chris Harold of Denver says, I had a modestly successful summer, but I saw a lot of pests, and I also had powdery mildew, which I have never had in 20 plus years growing here. I wonder if we're seeing the results of general climate change in our own gardens or if anyone else is researching it. Powdery mildew is actually really common in Colorado. It prefers a hot, dry climate to thrive in. So I'm amazed Mm. that 
their listeners never seen it in 20 years. In fact, they should consider themselves very lucky, especially when we have these cold, wet springs like we did, and then we hit right into the, the hot summer days. It tends to pop up almost overnight and be everywhere. Uh, Colorado State's Extension Service does have some good fact sheets on how to deal with powdery mildew, but it typically doesn't affect the plant that much. It doesn't, it's very ugly, but it doesn't tend to hurt the plant that much. And as far as it being due to climate change, I don't know of any university who is studying powdery mildew per se and the changes in our climate, but uh, that would be interesting to find out. That's so interesting that it doesn't hurt the plant as much. It sounds like it's not fun to see as a gardener, but good to know. It does block a bit of photosynthesis, but typically not enough to harm the plant overall. Let's talk about lawns. Mike Vesna from Erie also sent us a photo of his yard that had big brown spots in it, and he says a lot of his yard looks bad despite an eight-zone sprinkler and a $400 monthly water bill all summer. What could he do? This is such a timely question because fall is a great time to set ourselves up for better success in the springtime. And to have, I, I have to assume this is a huge yard with eight zones in it, Oftentimes people overwater in terms of the number of days and underwater in terms of the amount of time they need to spend in there on the um, sprinkler system. So I like to see people do a catch can test. They can use cat food cans or yogurt tubs, anything with a similar size and put them out, put some in the really greener areas of the lawn, put some in the browner areas of the lawn and turn the sprinkler system on for a set period of time that you know and then you go out with a ruler and you measure. You measure the depth in each of the cans, and if it's not the same, then you know that your sprinkler system needs to be adjusted. Then, after you get everything adjusted and you do a retest, you can look at how much water goes out per that time frame and figure out how much per hour you're getting. Then, you can take a look at CSU's website and see how much does a lawn need for the type of grass you have how much water does it need in inches per week, and then adjust your sprinklers accordingly. Personally, my lawn is watered twice a week, but it's a fairly long period of time. Now, if your lawn is very compacted, you might see a lot of runoff, and fall is an excellent time to aerate your lawn again. So when you do that, you wanna try and catch it after a nice rainfall or else water your lawn before the aerators come. That helps to get the soil moist so that their machinery can get a good plug out of the lawn. And I have them go over mine two to three times because you want those holes to be two to three inches apart and the machinery is always set at four inches. So once you get your aeration done, this is a great time for a fall fertilization or a fall reseeding, especially if you have bare spots like this photo showed. So it sounds like the key to an even green lawn isn't just watering a lot, it's watering well. Exactly. If your lawn is, if the soil is compacted, then it's going to shed water really easily and then it never gets down to the roots of the grass. But once you've had it aerated a couple of times, and I, when I got to my house, the one we live in now, the soil was very compact and I aerated both spring and fall for several years and now I just have to do it once a year and I only fertilize once a year and I actually had somebody ask me if my lawn was professionally done this year which was really a lovely compliment considering I didn't put much value in a lawn when I first moved here. 
Let's talk about another neighborhood question. Mary Oswell walks and rides her bike around her Westminster neighborhood, and she sees something that worries her. I have noticed a tremendous increase in the number of dead and dying trees. There are some young trees, there are some old trees, there's deciduous and evergreen trees. And I'm wondering if there was something in this particular spring, summer season that might be causing that. And is there something special we might be doing to help protect our own trees beyond our sort of regular watering and fertilizing? Well, we haven't had an event like the November 2014 polar vortex. That took out a lot of trees. But then again, trees may take several years to die because they're such a slow-moving, slow-growing creature. There's nothing specific to say other than Colorado's a hard place for a tree to live. We have high UV light, which causes bark cracks if we don't protect our young trees. And then we have, this spring, we had a lot of rain And then we had hot, 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 dry weather. And oftentimes if we have a lovely, wet, cool spring, plants will put on extra growth that they then can't support when that water supply is cut back. So they will often either, you'll have a whole branch flag or die out, or you'll have some browning and some leaf drop. But to see entire trees die out, typically means there's something going on in the root zone that we can't see. So we have to ask ourselves about water and drought stress. But it's really hard without seeing an actual tree to diagnose. Um, And having a lot in one area is very interesting. You have to wonder if something happened with their water. And what about weeds? Are we close enough to winter that we just shouldn't bother with them anymore? Well, that depends. So for annual weeds, we see a lot of them in seed right now. So your goat heads are in full seed, the kochia is in seed. These are great weeds to pull right now because if you just let them go and ignore them, you will have more next year. So the annuals, they set seed, then the next year they come back from that seed. If you can pull up the plant and put it in the garbage, you will reduce the seed load by that much. So the other day I pulled out a 10-foot diameter goat head. It had hundreds of seeds on it. And I know that next year none of those seeds will germinate because they're all in a landfill. And then when you get to the perennial weeds, one of our most difficult to deal with weeds is bindweed. And this is a great time of year because those perennial weeds are taking resources down to their root zone so they can survive the winter, which means they will also take herbicides down to their root zone to help destroy them more effectively. I know not everybody likes to use herbicides, but with Canada thistle, sometimes we have to use a multi-pronged approach to be really effective. And are there some herbicides that are better than others? It really depends on your purpose and where you're applying them. There are some that are selective, meaning they only will affect broadleaf weeds and they will leave grasses alone. There are some that are effective on plants that have woody stems. And there are others that are non-selective and will take out anything that they come in contact with. So you really have to have a good idea of what you're trying to get rid of, where you're trying to get rid of it, and also what time of year it is, because some of them you can't use when it's really hot. The best thing to do would be to call your county's extension office and ask them the question. Now, this all makes me wonder about the flip side. Is there any benefit to seeding your lawn maybe in the fall? Well, especially after you aerate, there's great benefit to it because that grass seed, as it falls into those plug holes, 
will be protected from the elements and the weather. It'll have good access to moisture over the winter with the snows, and it'll be ready to go when spring comes, and you won't have to add it to your list of already busy garden chores. How about some recommendations for fall color flower planting? Oh, there are some great fall plants. And I'll tell you, a lot of us gardeners, and myself included, spend the first couple years in our garden, we go in the spring and we buy all these blooming plants and we forget. And then we look at our yard in the fall and we're like, well, that's kind of boring. So over the years, I have managed to make myself go plant in the fall. And I love my asters. We have native asters from the mountains that grow here, as well as some of the Uh, They call them the Belgian or the English asters. They make more of a dome. They're really pretty. And we have some very water-wise plants that bloom well in the fall. We have the hummingbird mint or the agastakis. And there's a little one called monardella that is a bright, bright red trumpet. Fire engine red. Really pretty. And then if you want to do your orange and blue broncos colors... You could grow blue plumbago, also called serratus stigma, along with your zochneria, which is a beautiful orange trumpety flower. So you have this brilliant blue with your brilliant orange, and you've got your bronco sunset right in your garden. Lonnie, thank you so much for joining us to talk about gardens again. It's been as enjoyable as ever. CSU Master Gardener Lonnie Godet joins us seasonally to answer your gardening questions. One thing Lonnie touched on when talking about pumpkins and bell peppers is what happens with the changing autumn leaves. This is the time of year that a lot of people head to places like Guanella Pass in Colorado to check out the trees, and it prompted an age-old question we got through Colorado Wonders. What causes the leaves to change color in the fall? CPR's Haley Sanchez has the answer, along with when and where you can get the best views. Our question asker wants to know if it's the drop in temperature or the reduced amount of sunlight in the fall that triggers the leaves to change color. It's a little bit of both to actually show us the colors that we get. That's Dan West with the State Forest Service. He says the longer days tell the tree to put down what's called an abscission layer. That's just a fancy way to say the leaf becomes detached from the rest of the tree. That process stops chlorophyll, the green pigment in plants, from replenishing the greens drop out and we're left with the yellows and the reds and the oranges that are typically in there. So the cooler evenings trigger those sugars to turn more of a reddish color. And what really causes the best colors is to have sunny days followed up by cool nights. West says the recent record warm weather has held fall at bay, so prime leaf changing season is a little behind schedule this year. The leaves typically change from mid-September through early October. We've pretty much seen a delayed some places one week, some places two weeks, and we're still waiting to see what happens in the central and lower third of the state. He thinks of the state in thirds, the northern, central, and southern. Aspens higher in elevation and farther north will experience peak color sooner than those located lower in elevation and farther south. West says the highest elevations are just starting to turn gold, but when the rest of Colorado catches up, He says we're expected to have beautiful fall colors this year. We need those cool nights to really show up, and we need those sunny days to burn off the chlorophyll. And if we continue to get that, I think we're going to have a brilliant show this year. Near-peak conditions are expected in the northwest portion of the state this weekend. Much of Colorado will see fall colors during the first two weeks of October. And the eastern portion of the state will see trees peak as late as the third week of next month. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. What do you wonder about Colorado? You can submit questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders.
It's not very often that an actor finds out they've got the lead role the night of the performance. But that's the case in Everybody, a modern take on the ancient Greek morality play Every Man. The Catamounts, a Boulder-based theater company, are putting it on. Actor Peter Trin is one of the ensemble cast members, and he has to be prepared to play the lead with no notice. Yeah, a lottery happens on stage. The audience gets to see which actor is chosen to play everybody in front of them. And that is the person who plays the role. And once that person is picked, the rest of the everybody cast congregates and decides on stage who's going to play the rest of the roles. So that means the show could look very different every night, depending on who plays everybody. The Everybody cast is specifically made up of very different actors with different backgrounds. So in the rehearsals, what we've noticed, what really stands out is whomever is chosen to play Everybody kind of changes the tone of the whole show. The character of Everybody represents all mankind. So because you're playing an archetype, you have to bring a lot of yourself to the role. Like... Tracia Ferris is an African-American female, and when she plays a role, uh, there's a real effeminate tone to it, and it really changes the whole play. Trin says that diversity of race and gender is crucial in this play because it tackles tough topics. The script actually even says, at the time of the lottery, that the purpose is to hint towards the randomness of death, as well as break our conceptions of identity. So there are specific lines, even racially motivated lines, that when you change the actor who says these lines, it changes everything. And so it really makes you think twice about your preconceptions about race. In some instances, everybody is even self-referential, a play within a play. The character of everybody is essentially kind of waking up from this dream having this experience that you're watching and they're, they kind of don't know if it's a dream. They kind of don't know that it's a play. And the play pokes fun at itself in the sense that they that the play knows that it's a play. And so there's this experience of not knowing if we're alive, not knowing if we're dreaming, not knowing if we're in the theater or not. The actors choose specific times where they will address the audience directly and it kind of pulls you out of the play world into real life and you think about these messages that transcend just the play world and into the real world. And I think that is a very, very interesting part of the play. Actor Peter Trin is one of the ensemble cast members in the Catamount's new production, Everybody. It runs at the Dairy Art Center in Boulder through October 12th. Finally today, a Colorado artist who's recently released his debut album four decades into his career. You may not know the name Mark Obwinger, but over his long career as a Boulder musician, he's played with Garth Brooks and Amy Grant. He's been the member of Pure Prairie League and the Colorado band Firefall. And he's won multiple Emmys for his music featured on PBS children's shows. Obwinger is now in the spotlight himself with his debut album, High Water Line. Time comes again, it's right here, my friend, it's you choose no more what you lose when time comes and takes your second chances away so i say
NPR Music recently featured a winger's single, No Regrets, on their heavy rotation playlist, calling it sophisticated pop with throwback to the 70s, but sounds current nonetheless. Obwinger recruited some of Boulder's finest musicians to play on high waterline, including members of Leftover Salmon and the E-Tones. Mark Obwinger performed Saturday at Ginger and Baker in Fort Collins. His debut album, High Waterline, is out now. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.